Welcome to the podcast that helps you win the race marked out for you. For decades, we've been hearing that the Bible is laced with a patriarchal bias, which, more enlightened, modern Christians must uncover and correct. This episode examines this flawed argument, which, if left unchecked, will shape the rising generation in our homes and churches. Thanks for joining us today for session number one, episode number 33 of Mission Focused Men. My name is Gary Yeagle. I don't know about you, but the words patriarch, patriarchal, and patriarchy are kind of confusing, I think, to most of us. Abraham is called a patriarch in church, which means that he lived to be the ultimate great-grandfather, a good thing. But increasingly in our culture, patriarchy refers to an abusive unjust system of government in which men hold all the power. The rising generation is being taught that when the Bible makes distinctions between gender roles, it reflects the sinful patriarchy of an unenlightened, old-fashioned cultural system that abused women and children. The way to influence the thinking of lost folks around us who hold such views is to love them well. For Males, it's also to model godly manhood as husbands, fathers, and as we saw last week, surrogate fathers to those who have no dad. This fatherhood role, though, also means protecting others from peer pressure all around them that squeezes them into its mold. So let's examine the argument that the Bible teaches patriarchy. Specifically, five ways this argument is based upon false logic. First, the accusation that the Bible embraces unjust patriarchy often begins with a straw man. This way of arguing misrepresents your opponent's views because it is easier than defeating his real argument. The biblical teaching of male leadership at home is often misidentified with extreme minority views like those of a group called Vision Forum that was led at one time by homeschooler Doug Phillips. Let me illustrate with examples of what Wikipedia identifies as this group's teaching about biblical patriarchy, views that are extreme. Again, this is presented sometimes as the view of complementarianism, which it really isn't. So we'll follow this explanation of this extremist group's views with the majority view of complementarianism as set forth by the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood's Danvers Statement Affirmations. Number one, biblical patriarchy believes God reveals himself as masculine, not feminine. However, the Danvers Statement, reflecting true complementarianism, actually says, quote, both Adam and Eve were created in God's image equal before God as persons and distinct in their manhood and womanhood. In other words, it takes man and woman to fully image God. Number two, biblical patriarchy believes God-honoring society will prefer male leadership in civil and other affairs. That is true of the Vision Forum movement, but not true of the majority of complementarians. 
Most churches and organizations like the Gospel Coalition, who believe God created male and female for different roles in the home and church, are in fact careful not to go beyond what Scripture makes clear. For this reason, the Danvers Statement says nothing about, quote, civil and other affairs, unquote. It defines male headship in the home and covenant community. In these two spheres, there is clear accountability for husbands and fathers, as well as the calling to model God as Heavenly Father and Christ as the husband of his bride. Third, this article on Christian patriarchy cites three examples of patriarchal teaching, that women should not vote, that higher education is not important for women, and that unmarried adult women are subject to their father's authority. When feminists or egalitarians cite these extreme views as reflective of complementarianism, they exemplify classic straw man building. My entire denomination is complementarian, and I don't know anyone who holds these radical views. To the contrary, complementarianism views God's assignment for men, given in Genesis 2.15, to be using his role to cause those under his care to flourish. Flourishing means equipping his daughter to fully participate in the decisions of life, like voting. It means getting training that helps her fully develop all of her gifts. And it means encouraging her to use her gifts in a Bible-believing church where she, like unordained men, is under the care of elders. Setting up a straw man, then, is widely used by those who oppose biblical complementarianism. The second fallacious argument accusing the Bible of teaching unjust patriarchy is circular reasoning. With circular reasoning, you assume what you are trying to prove, but don't actually prove it. Here's an article entitled, Is the Bible Patriarchal? Yes and No, an excerpt from Gender Roles and the People of God by Jeremy Bauma. Bauma writes, The Danvers Statement reads, Adam's headship in marriage was established by God before the fall and was not a result of the fall. Proponents of gender-based hierarchy don't believe ontological equality of men and women leads to functional equality. Equality of being does not lead to an equality of roles. Can you see the logical fallacy? He assumes, but never proves, that submission to another's authority proves his or her inferiority. Submission of a wife to her husband's leadership must mean that, by definition, she is inferior. In fact, this assumption is completely false. It does not conform at all with reality. Does a citizen submitting to a police officer mean that he believes he is inferior to the police officer? Does an athlete submitting to her coach mean she is an inferior human being to the coach? Does anyone actually believe that a child submitting to his parent implies that the child is a human being without as much intrinsic worth and dignity as the parent? God the Son is fully equal to God the Father in every single way, but for the purpose of salvation, he submitted to the Father's will. Submission does not mean inequality. The third logical fallacy that is used to accuse the Bible of unjust patriarchy is implying that there is causation when there is just correlation. 
a coach who always wins when he wears a certain pair of socks reflects this logical fallacy if he actually believes it. Those who fault God's home and church structure of authority for the horrible mistreatment of women are sadly mistaken when they blame the structure. The real cause is human sin. The Danvers statement makes this clear. Point number four. The fall introduced distortions into the relationships between men and women. Number one, in the home, the husband's loving, humble headship tends to be replaced by domination or passivity. The wife's intelligent, willing submission tends to be replaced by usurpation or servility. In the church, sin inclines men toward a worldly love of power or an abdication of spiritual responsibility and inclines women to resist limitations on their roles or to neglect the use of their gifts in appropriate ministries. Notice how well this statement fits reality. Sin causes leaders to abuse their authority or refuse to take responsibility for leading. It causes followers to either rebel against authority or to be mindlessly submissive. The fact that the men of society have the most power and use it to abuse women is true, but the cause is not God's design of authority in the home and church. It is human sin. The fourth way that the biblical view of male and female is attacked is through plain ignorance of the facts concerning patriarchy. Patriarchy literally is the rule of the father. Historians tell us that Roman households were patriarchal. The father had absolute power to rule. Neither Israel in the Old Testament nor the church in the New Testament were patriarchies. No Israelite or Christian wife or child was under the naked, individual, capricious rule of an all-powerful father. Both Israelite citizens and church members were under the rule of law. There have always been protections for widows, orphans, children, and wives built into God's moral law to restrain men from abusing their power by mistreating them. Although it's not easy to know how to apply these laws from Israel's theocracy to our day, consider just one example, protecting women from Deuteronomy 22 23 through 27. If there is a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring both out to the gate of that city and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry out for help, though she was in the city and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife. But if in the open country, a man meets a young woman who is betrothed and the man seizes her and lies with her, Then only the man who lay with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the young woman. She has committed no offense punishable by death. Though the betrothed young woman cried for help, there was no one to rescue her. I'm not saying we always understand these laws from Deuteronomy, but I am saying that the fathers and husbands in Israel were accountable to God's moral law and to the elders of the city who were responsible to enforce these laws. 
in the church, husbands and fathers are accountable to Christ, the head of the church, whose authority is exercised through the rule of church elders. It is true that patriarchy is a word that is sometimes used to describe a culture in which land, property, and lineage are transferred through the father as the head of the household. That was true of Israel. But this legal structure had laws to protect against anyone being harmed by the male abuse of power. It was not the same as Roman patriarchy. The last false accusation I want to look at directed against men's leadership at home and the church is made using a fallacious argument called ad populum. This argument ridicules the other side as being completely out of date with modern thinking. It says, in essence, yeah, people who hold your view sound like the people who once thought the earth was flat. Here is an example of this argument. It is from a Christianity Today article entitled Leaving Patriarchy in the Past, which reviews John Stockhouse's book, Partners in Christ, A Conservative Case for Egalitarianism. This article reads, Stackhouse acknowledges that certain New Testament passages embrace a sweeping complementarian viewpoint. He maintains, however, that once a culture has left its patriarchal origins behind, these passages are no longer meant to be obeyed. This argument is based upon condescension towards anyone who holds the outdated idea that men should lead their homes. It reeks of arrogance. That is assuming that our current Western egalitarian culture, which calls viewing differences in male and female roles sexist, is enlightened more than every other culture that has not, quote unquote, left patriarchy behind. The fact is that outside of current Western culture, nearly every culture of the world for thousands of years has recognized that men are to be the leaders of the home. It is our culture which denies obvious differences between men and women that is blind to parts of reality. To be fair, it is also our culture that has put a bright spotlight on the way men have misused their power. But the problem is not the God-ordained structure for the human family. The accusation that the biblical understanding of manhood comes from patriarchy is completely false. The best way to help others see the glory of God's design, though, is to show them biblical fatherhood the way it was designed to be. With the remainder of our time, I want to return to a portrait of godly fatherhood, taking a closer look at some of the characteristics mentioned last week by Pete Alwinson in his book, Like Father, Like Son. Number one, God designed humans to need a welcoming father. That means consistently communicating, I always have time for you. I always enjoy time with you because I enjoy you. It means proving that your child is important to you because you refuse to let other things take priority over time with your child. When they interrupt your project, it means dying to the immediate goals on your to-do list for a few moments or longer to talk. It means taking the initiative to get into your child's world, being a part of their everyday lives, so that when they really need you, they will come to you. It is recognizing that quality time is a myth. A son or daughter's love language is spelled T-I-M-E. It is daily fighting the pressure to succeed in a tough world because that pressure will blind you to the unmet need in your child's heart for time with you. 
It means having a brother to challenge you. Are you saving time and energy for the home front? Number two, humans need an approval-giving father. It is understanding that almost nothing in the world motivates your child as much as hearing you say, I'm proud of you. We see that truth in the way God the Father spoke audibly from heaven. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Part of our leadership role in our families is realizing that our words of praise have so much power to steer our children whose hearts are shaped to want our approval. We need to regularly give that to them and as often as possible link it to character. Wow, I'm proud of the way you worked really hard on that science project. You know, I noticed your sister criticizing you, but you kept your temper and you did not retaliate. That's what Jesus would have done. Our children have a vacuum in their heart to hear from their father, well done. I'm so proud. The more we build that bond of approval from us, the easier it will be for our child to unplug that longing for approval from us and reconnect it to his heavenly father and Lord. Number three, an identity building father. We need to constantly express our confidence in the fact that God has perfectly designed our children for the mission he wants them to accomplish. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We need to keep reaffirming Psalm 139, that they were perfectly designed while still in their mother's womb. We need to do whatever we can to help them discover their own abilities disc or Myers-Briggs profile, and spiritual gifts with a sense of anticipation about what God will use them to accomplish for His glory. Number four, we need a freedom-giving father. The goal of our training program for our children is for them to take responsibility for their own lives, especially their own faith and walk with Christ. In the early years, we must train our children attentiveness, obedience, and impulse control. They need to learn to rule their own desires and not be a slave to them. We'll look in more detail at a biblical training plan for our children next week. As our children grow, they need limited freedom to begin to make their own decisions. We need to train them in what the Bible calls the fear of the Lord, not emotionally being afraid of God, but understanding his weightiness. You never break his law and get away with it. The wage of sin is always destruction. As we administer pain as a consequence for disobeying us, we teach them that lesson. Our goal is to give our children more and more responsibility for his or her own life. We need to let them experience the consequences of their own bad choices, but not give so much freedom that they can crash and burn. Finally, a grace-giving father. We need to empower those under our leadership with grace by leading with a limp, that is, by being open about our own sins and failures. Proverbs 17.6 says, The glory of children is their father. They admire us so much that they can put us on a huge pedestal, and we kind of like respect. However, the best thing we can do is let them know how much we need grace. A second way to give grace to our children is through our compassion for them. Compassion for what they are experiencing knits our hearts to theirs. 
especially when they fail. That doesn't mean removing painful consequences for bad behavior. In fact, compassion means feeling the pain of what that continued behavior will do to him or her if they do not get pain for bad behavior. But grace-filled compassion says, I know it hurts not to be able to play with Billy this afternoon because you didn't get your room cleaned up. I hate it when I miss out on being with my friends, too. Or, I get painful consequences in life, too, when I don't listen to God. God's not angry with our sin. Jesus took all that. It's just that he's made life so that when we don't obey him, life doesn't work right. But I'm sure you'll put this lesson behind you, and tomorrow is another day. Biblical fatherhood is not a form of patriarchy, nor is it the same as motherhood. Men who answer the call to fatherhood enormously benefit everyone in the culture because humans are created by God to need a father. To summarize this episode, in a culture where loud voices shaping the next generation want to ignore, if not erase, gender differences, at risk to our culture is the profoundly important concept of fatherhood. The charge that biblical fatherhood is a form of abusive patriarchy is nonsense. It rests entirely on inaccurate reasoning. Number one, extreme views of gender roles presented as a straw man, inaccurately presenting the complementarian view. Number two, circular reasoning that is employed making an assumption that different roles, by definition, means inequality. Number three, opponents of complementarianism present the flawed argument that correlation means causation. Since men abuse the power they are given in their homes to mistreat women and children, the cause must be God's structure of authority, when in fact the cause is human sin. Four, often the biblical view of gender roles is attacked through a plain ignorance of the facts concerning patriarchy. Five, perhaps worst of all, the charge is leveled that the biblical teaching needs to be corrected by those of us in a superior culture that has left patriarchy behind. For men to step up to godly fatherhood is urgently needed today. All children need a welcoming, approval-giving, identity-building, freedom-giving, grace-giving father or father figure. For further thought, number one, which of the flawed arguments that the Bible teaches unjust patriarchy have you heard? What do you think is the cumulative effect upon fathers of hearing these accusations from many media voices? Number two, which of the five characteristics of godly fathers means the most to you about your heavenly father? Which do you think means the most to most kids? Next week is our final episode about fatherhood. God put fathers in charge of their children's training, but our wives seem so much wiser, intuitive, and smarter than we are about this. This episode outlines contours of a plan for training our children so we can take it to our wives for help in accomplishing it. For further information about our ministry, go to forgingbonds.org. And if this podcast has been helpful to you, don't forget to tell other Christian men about a podcast that helps them stay focused on their mission while they work out or commute.